Two and a half weeks from today, I guess uh, two weeks from this coming Wednesday, on May 1st, that's going to be the 16th anniversary of one of the most notorious media events in, I'd say, in my recent memory anyway. There are plenty of notorious media events, but this one that happened 16 years ago is burned indelibly in my mind and probably in many of your minds as well. You can picture when George W. Bush was standing on the deck of the USS Abraham Lincoln and he was giving a speech declaring the end of major combat or major combat uh, exercises in Iraq. The reason that you can picture it in your mind probably is because it was on every front page, it was on every newscast, him standing there with a banner behind him. Anybody remember what that banner said? banner said, Mission Accomplished. And that banner, when it said Mission Accomplished, it didn't matter what he said, it didn't matter what the speech was, it didn't matter anything, but those pictures, everybody that was paying attention, everybody that paid attention at all, knew that the war on terror, that mission hadn't been accomplished. That was still going on, and and there were still going to be troops stationed around the world. Everybody that was watching, everybody that listened to the speech knew that. But just that picture of him standing there with that banner behind him that said, Mission Accomplished, he was mocked. The media mocked him for that. He was, you watched his approval ratings go further down into the, into the dust. Just the visual of him standing there knowing full good and well that the war wasn't over, but having that banner behind him. Now that banner had been ordered by the ship's captain and all that stuff. It was there on the ship to declare that that ship was coming home and that particular mission for that ship was accomplished, but the communication, the optics of it was all wrong. Now there are several lessons that I think that we can learn from that experience, but here's what I want us to think about as a church this morning. It's easy to confuse individual victories that happen along the way you know, like that ship had had an individual victory along the way, and it was its mission, individual mission was accomplished. It's easy to confuse individual victories along the way with overall mission accomplishment, isn't it? It's easy to see those things as we move along and think, man, we've arrived, when we haven't. You know, our mission as a church, we say it over and over and over again, it's on every week on the slides, it's in your bulletin, it's everywhere if you look at it. Our mission as a church is that we are new lives, bringing new life to our neighbors and the nations. And when we see some of the things that we get to see, that we've gotten to see over the last few years as a church, when we see some of those things, it's easy to think that our mission is accomplished. When we start to see the church growing and we start to see people and families being added to the church just a couple of weeks ago when we had the commissioning of five new members of the church, we get excited and we can look at those kinds of things and think, man, we, we're there. 
When we start to see the intergenerational growth and the multi-ethnic growth that God is bringing to our church, we can begin to think, man, we've arrived. It's easy to confuse those individual victories with overall mission accomplishment, isn't it? As we move farther and farther from the time when it seemed like it was obvious that the church was within just months or a short period of time of having to close the doors, as we move farther and farther away from that and as it fades into our memories, it can be easy to think that we've arrived. When we see people stepping up and when we see people taking on new ministry roles and when we see God answering our prayer to raise up workers into His harvest field, it can be easy to think that we've arrived. When we see lives inside our church and outside our church being impacted, it's tempting to hang up a mission accomplished banner right here and say we've done it. You know, I thank God for the victories that we've seen along the way. But to borrow from President Bush's words in that speech, our kingdom mission continues. Despite the victories, despite those things that we've seen along the way, despite the accomplishment along the way, our mission continues. Amen? And we get to see that this morning as we finish our study through the book of Acts. As we finish our study through the book of Acts, we need to remember where Paul has been. He's completed all of his missionary journeys. He's completed all of the church planting that he was involved in. He's completed all of those. He's completed his final journey from that we see in Acts, this final journey from Jerusalem to Rome. He's completed all of those steps. And then now the book just abruptly ends. It's hard to imagine that as I was reading that, if it was the first time that you've ever read through the book of Acts and you get to the end and you're like, well, is that it? The book just abruptly ends there. The reason that the book ends the way that it does, the reason that it ends so abruptly is because the end of the book of Acts is not the end of Paul's life. It's not the end of the story. It doesn't mark the end of his ministry. It certainly doesn't mark the end of the church's story or the story of the kingdom of God. It's really just one chapter along the way. If you write in your Bible, I I would encourage you, right at the end of verse 31 there, I'd write just three more words. I'd write to be continued on there. Just as a reminder that this story of the church, this story of the acts of the Holy Spirit, this story of the acts of the church is ongoing. It is to be continued. After verse 31, Paul was still on mission. After verse 31, we are still on mission. Our kingdom mission continues, and our kingdom mission is going to continue until Jesus returns. Amen? That means we've always still got work to do, don't we? Our passage this morning shows us two ways that our mission still continues. It still continues through right relationships and through the right message. First, our mission still continues through having the right relationships. 
Paul's ministry was always marked by relationships, wasn't it? As we've walked with Paul through these last two, over two years, we've seen how every step of the lo- along the way, he was developing and building relationships. Relationships were a key part of his ministry. They were always marked by that, and it's no different here in the last few verses of Acts. Here in these last few verses of Acts, we get to see, see how three kinds of those relationships were part of his ministry and part of our ongoing continuing ministry. The first kind of relationship that we get to see is church family relationships. Look back up at verses 14 and 15. Those of y'all who were paying attention, you know that we covered these verses last week, but we get to cover them a little bit uh, more this morning. Look back at verses 14 and 15. It says, There we found brothers, and we were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, on seeing the brothers, on seeing his church family there, Paul thanked God and took courage. Remember, Paul was traveling with Luke and a fellow by the name of Aristarchus. And when Paul and Luke and Aristarchus first arrived in Rome, they weren't expecting the church to have already gotten there, the church to have already been planted there. But it was. When they got there, the church was there to meet them. As soon as they got off that ship, as soon as they finished that shipwrecked journey, the church was there to meet them. So... We talk about it all the time, but why is church family so important? Why do I talk all the time about the importance of being a covenant member of a local body of believers? Why, why do I talk about that all the time? Now, skeptics among you could begin to think, well, you know, it's a preacher and he's just trying to build up attendance, trying to build up offerings, all that, all that kind of stuff. I really hope that you don't, that you don't think that. I really hope that you don't think that that's the reason that I emphasize this so much. I emphasize the necessity of church family because church family is exactly that. It is necessary. It's not only necessary, it is crucial. It is crucial. It is essential to be part of a covenanted body of believers, a church family. It's essential because we need each other. Just plain and simple, we desperately need each other. Yeah, we need each other for mutual support and friendship and all of that kind of stuff. It's great to have church family to call on when you when you need something or when you just need to talk or you need somebody to pray for you. That's It's great to have church family for that. But that's not the main reason that church family is essential. Sometimes we elevate that to the main thing, but the main reason that church family is essential is because we are on mission together. Amen? We have a mission to accomplish, and the only way that we can accomplish that is together with the unique giftings and talents and abilities, God using all of those to equip us to do the mission that we're called to do. You know, um, I, I've watched all the movies and, you know, get excited and all that kind of stuff. Uh, movies about the, or, or TV shows or whatever about the, the, the lone wolf guy, right? The, the fighter pilot. And he's F-16. I use F-16 because I'm Air Force. <laughs> but flying all by himself up in that cockpit, all by himself being the, 
the super lone wolf kind of guy. Or, or you, you can picture the sniper up on the hill by himself off in the, in, in his ghillie suit and all of that, and they're fighting the war all by themselves. Well, those are Hollywood portrayals. Because the reality is, there is no such thing as a solo warrior. Uh, even the sniper, even the fighter, fighter pilot, they might be the tip of the spear, but there is a whole group of people who are with them and who are behind them. And it's the same picture in the church, right? There are no solo warriors in the kingdom. You know, the one who fancies themselves as the solo warrior who bounces, who bounces back and forth between ministries and, and events and church services and all of that and, and thinks that they're accomplishing the kingdom mission by themselves. That's a myth. Because we desperately, desperately need each other. Church family isn't just a nice thing to have. We desperately need each other if we're going to accomplish the mission that God has called us to. If we're going to accomplish His kingdom mission. So church family relationships, they might be the first relationship that we need to accomplish our mission, but they are certainly not the only relationships we need because we also need one-to-one relationships. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, And when we came into Rome... Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. You know, Paul was in a situation that he didn't ask for, and he was stuck with somebody that he didn't necessarily want to be with, wasn't he? Even though Paul was under this kind of house arrest, it was, it was, he had experienced much more freedom in this environment than he did in a later prison experience in Rome. But he was in this house arrest kind of environment, but even though it was experiencing people coming, allowed to come and go and all that, he was still chained to a Roman soldier. He was still imprisoned. Now, when we say he was chained to a Roman soldier, we don't necessarily mean that he was chained to just one Roman soldier. These guys took shifts. They rotated. They probably rotated on a four-hour shift. So for four hours, one Roman soldier was chained to Paul. And then, after four hours, then another one came in and was chained to Paul. Up to six men per day were chained to Paul. Up to six men per day. Hours of gospel opportunity. Hours of watching the way that Paul conducted himself like Christ. Hours of hearing Paul dictate his letters to the churches. While he was in this imprisonment in Rome, he wrote Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. Hours of hearing him dictate those letters. Hours of seeing him disciple these men who would come in and out to visit him. Hours of seeing Paul proclaim the gospel to the ones that he was chained to. Who was a prisoner to whom? (laughs) How many of those guards do you think got saved? I imagine quite a bit, quite quite a good number of them got saved. And then 
Think about it this way. How many of those saved guards, when they got off their four-hour shift with Paul, went back to their battalion and began to communicate the gospel to their bunkmates? How many of those bunkmates got saved? And then the nature of military, the nature of the military always, and especially in these days of Rome, it's very transient. So these saved military members would move from their battalion to the next battalion and to the next battalion, and as they went to the next battalion and shared the gospel in that battalion, how many of those folks do you think got saved? You see the exponential nature? You know, we understand, we know from looking at history, we know how rapidly Christianity spread through the Roman Empire during the first two centuries after Christ. Virtually the whole, well, after three centuries, the whole Roman Empire had heard the gospel. And many of them had been saved. And people try to figure that out, and these smart missiologists, they try to figure out how Christianity spread that rapidly throughout the Roman Empire in just a few decades. And the only thing that they can attribute it to is how these soldiers who went all over the Roman Empire, how they would carry the gospel on their lips. These saved soldiers. Multiplying disciples through real relationships. Starting with real church family relationships and moving to one-to-one discipling relationships with lost people. That's how the gospel spreads, isn't it? That's certainly the best start to accomplishing our mission, but those aren't the only relationships that we need. We also need confrontational relationships. Look at the first part of verse 17. First part of verse 17 says, After three days he called together the local leaders of the Jews. Do you remember why Paul was in prison in the first place? You remember he was in prison in the first place because of a conflict with the Jewish leaders. So why in the world, when he was finally away from them, why in the world would he reach out to them to come to him? The Jewish religious leaders from Jerusalem and from Asia Minor, they'd been chasing him all over that part of the world trying to kill him. And here he is voluntarily reaching out to them and saying, hey, y'all come see me, come visit me, would you? What was he thinking? He was thinking that they needed Jesus. That's what he was thinking. Paul had a unique position. He had a unique opportunity to bring those people, to bring those enemies of the cross, to bring them in to him so that he could proclaim the gospel to them. Now, he was, he knew that there was a very good possibility that they were going to hate him. They had been trying to kill him. He knew that there was a very good possibility that they might still be plotting to kill him somehow. But he had the opportunity to reach him with the gospel. So he had that opportunity, he took that opportunity despite how awkward or despite the possibility for animosity with them. Despite that possibility, he called to them, reached out to them, and asked them to come to him. That's bold, isn't it? I 
gosh, man, I got to confess, I have a hard time being that bold with people I know who are going to be animus toward our message. But if we're going to if we're going to see our area seriously impacted for the kingdom, and folks, we've got to get bold. We're going to have to start boldly sharing the gospel with people who don't like us, who don't act like us, who don't live like us. You know, it's great to invite nice people to church, and I hope that we still continue to invite nice people to church. We're going to have invitations for y'all to give out to friends and family and all that kind of stuff so that we can fill this place up next Sunday. It's great to invite nice people to church. But listen, if we're going to really have a kingdom impact in our area, we're not going to see that until we quit being afraid to build good gospel relationships with Muslims and Mormons and atheists and addicts and homosexuals and people who don't know what bathroom to go to. We have got to get bold with the gospel. Those people need Jesus. Amen? They need Jesus whether they suffer from the same kind of sins that we do or not. They need Jesus just the same way that you and I need Jesus. Amen? And the only way that they're going to meet Jesus is if we introduce them to Him. That's what we've been entrusted with. That might, that might mean we're going to have to get a little bit more confrontational sometimes. Confrontational doesn't mean mean. It just means stepping into those awkward, difficult situations with the word of the gospel on our lips. But notice what happened. In verse 23, after Paul was bold and he confronted the Jewish leaders with the gospel, it wasn't a willing dialogue, it wasn't comfortable, but look what happened in verse 23. In verse 23, even though it was awkward, more and more and more of them came to hear him. As he stepped into the opportunity that God gave him, God broadened the opportunity, didn't he? And then in verse 24, it says that out of all of those confrontational relationships, it says that some of them got saved. Some of them got saved. Don't you want to see that? Let me just rephrase that. Do you want to see that? Does anybody want to see that? You want to see people who are far from God get saved? Boy, I do. I do. See, that's our mission. Our mission is to build real relationships with people that will multiply disciples. And if we're going to accomplish our mission, our mission, sometimes those relationships need to be awkward. We need to have church family relationships. Yes, we need to have one-to-one kind of relationships, but we also need to have those confrontational kind of relationships. So our mission continues through having the right relationships, but those right relationships will only become kingdom-building gospel relationships if we have the right message. So we need to understand that our mission only continues through the right message. We've seen Paul's message over and over and over again 
through the book of Acts as we've worked our way through this book. But here, one last time, we get to see his message, and it's really kind of a condensed four-part nutshell. The first part of Paul's message that we see in this passage is it is a message of hope. Look at verses 17 through 22. It says, After three days he called together... He called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore... I have asked to see you and speak with you since, and here's a good phrase to circle, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. They said to them, we've received no letters from Judea about you. None of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you, but we desire to hear more from you what your views are with regard to this sect. We know that everywhere it is spoken against. Do you see what I asked you to circle back up there in verse 20? Paul's message, Paul was speaking to them. He said, it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. So we got to ask ourselves, what, what is the hope of Israel? And you remember what started the Jewish leaders' beef with Paul? We kind of talked about it a minute ago. The the reason that they were against Paul was because they thought that he had snuck a Gentile into the temple. But then after that, after that initial kerfuffle or whatever, that's what they were originally stirred up about. But after that, then in chapter 3, when Paul was being grilled by the Sanhedrin, he told them that he was on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And he repeated the same thing in front of Felix. He repeated the same thing again in front of Agrippa. That was his continual message to them was this hope of the resurrection. So what was the hope of Israel? The hope of Israel is the same as the hope of America. The hope of Israel is the same as the hope of Virginia, of West Virginia. The hope of Israel is the same as the hope of Tazewell County and Mercer County. The hope of Israel is the same as the hope of Bluefield. The hope of Israel is the same as the hope for our neighbors and the nations. Our hope is what we're focusing on next Sunday. Our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what our hope is. Our message is hope because Jesus is alive. Amen? Our hope is because Jesus is alive, and not just because Jesus is alive, but because He is alive, those of us who have trusted Him as Lord and Master and Savior will live. As the as our mission says, we are new lives in Him. That's our hope. So while our message is a message of hope, it's also the message of Jesus as revealed in His Word. Look at verses 23 and 24. It says, When they had appointed a day for Him, 
In other words, when they set an appointment, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying. See, morning to evening. Any, any of y'all think that our, that my preaching goes long? Try the morning to evening thing, right? So just read that and thank God that we're only here for a while. From morning to evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. You know, this time of the year, if you, if you flip through the, uh, through the channels that are, you know, preparing us for Easter or whatever, and there are many Easter messages that you will hear that are trying to uh, give you all of the scientific and all of the philosophical evidence of the resurrection. Now, we might have a little bit of that next Sunday. I, I don't know how much that will have. Some of that is good and helpful. But no matter what the evidence says, no matter what the scientific evidence or the philosophical evidence says, the real proof that Jesus is alive is here in the Bible. This is our real proof, and this is the only proof that we need. Notice how Paul tried to convince them. Paul didn't try to convince them about Jesus through his skillful use of philosophy and his skillful use of the, the fancy word is evidentiary apologetics. He didn't try to go into all of that. I'm not saying that those things are bad, but that's not how Paul was convincing them about Jesus. How does it say he was convincing them about Jesus? By expounding the Scriptures. He tried to convince them about Jesus through the Bible. He used the first five books of the Old Testament, the law, and the way that the Jews referred to the prophets was everything else. In other words, he took the 39 books of the Old Testament and he laid them out in front of them and proclaimed Christ from the Old Testament. Matter of fact, he did the exact same thing that Jesus did on the road to Emmaus. You remember after Jesus' resurrection, he met with some folks on this road to Emmaus. And they were all downtrodden because Jesus had died. They didn't know about the resurrection. They didn't know any of that. And Jesus appeared to them and walked along them along that journey. And this is what it says in Luke chapter 24, verse 27. It says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them all the Scriptures, the things concerning Himself. Jesus was standing in front of them, and instead of miraculously revealing Himself to them, He took the Bible and preached Jesus to them. And that's the same thing that Paul was doing here, and that's the same thing that we're called to do. So the question for each of us is not to look to the preacher and say, well, preacher, that's a good thing for you to do. The question for each of us is to say, do I know my Bible well enough to lead somebody to Jesus from the pages of Scripture? Do I know my Bible that well? Can you use your Bible to walk somebody through the plan of salvation? Do you know your Bible well enough to convince people of Jesus? I hope so. Because really, that's the only tool we've got. That's our message. Our message 
is Scripture. That's where you find our message of hope. That's where you find our message of Jesus. And that's where you find the third part, the message of God's plan. Look at verses 25 through 28. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and in turn I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen." You know, I'm continually amazed how some people can hear over and over. They can hear the gospel. They can hear our message of hope. They can hear our message of Jesus over and over and over and over and over again and still choose to remain lost in their sin. It never ceases to amaze me. But I see it all the time. After all of Paul's persuasion, after all of his gifted exposition of Scripture, after bringing them to him, after doing all of those things, verse 24 says that others disbelieved. Yes, some were convinced, and we praise God that some were convinced, but it breaks my heart that everyone who hears our message is not going to believe. We praise God that some get saved, and when we get, when we get to see somebody get saved, we thank God for that, but we need to weep and mourn the fact that some refuse, that some disbelieve. The bottom line is we need to understand that salvation is not of us. Our kingdom responsibility, and we have a very real responsibility given to us in Scripture by God. Our very real responsibility is to deliver the message as effectively, as passionately as we can. That's our kingdom responsibility. Our kingdom responsibility is to build relationships with people so that we can use Scripture to give them the message of hope in Christ. That's our ongoing mission. That's our real responsibility. That's what we're called to do. But we need to understand that God is the one who's in control of all things. Amen? God is in control of all things, including salvation. God is responsible for using the message that we proclaim He'll use that to draw and to woo people and to convict people of sins. And somehow, mysteriously, under His plan, the people that we're building gospel relationships with, they have the individual responsibility to believe what we've told them. They must respond to God's calling and the Spirit's conviction. They must willingly trust Jesus as their personal Lord and Master and Savior and friend. And the fact is that some people will, and some will disbelieve. But just because somebody that you've worked hard to build a relationship with and somebody that you've worked hard to proclaim the gospel to, just because that that person decides to disbelieve, 
and to reject Christ, that doesn't mean you give up and quit. It can be easy to think that way. But you don't give up and quit. Regardless of the response that you receive, your mission continues. Verse 28 says that Paul moved on to proclaiming the gospel to the next group who would listen. We need to do the same. doesn't mean that we quit trying with anybody, but it means that when we get closed doors in our face, we move on and proclaim the gospel everywhere. We don't give up. We don't quit. We can confidently and boldly build relationships and multiply disciples because we know that God is in control. Our message, our message is a message of hope. Our message is a message of Jesus. Our message is a message of God's plan. Now let's finish up our study with Luke's summary there in verses 30 and 31. It says, He lived there two whole years at His own expense and welcomed all who came to Him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so the book of Acts ends where we must start with the proclamation of the kingdom of God with all boldness and without hindrance. Listen, I know that it's been, um, it's been an accomplishment to finish this two plus year journey, 80 messages through the book of Acts. I know it's been an accomplishment as we journeyed through this book. But we can't ever look at this like we're done. We can't ever look at this like we're finished. This is just one small accomplishment, one small victory along the way. Now, we can and we should celebrate this, and we're going to tonight at our New Life Gathering. That's uh, we got a cookie cake, so <laughs> we're going to come and we're going to celebrate the fact that we've worked our way, that we've accomplished this. I hope you join us as we do that. But even as we celebrate this, we need to understand that our kingdom mission is not finished. Our mission is not accomplished. Our mission will continue through right relationships and through the right message. And here's what I want to ask you this morning. Will you join us on that mission? Our mission here at Parkview is that we are new lives, bringing new life to our neighbors and the nations. That means that if you're going to join us on our mission, the first thing is that you have to be a new life. You have to have experienced new life in Christ. Let me just boil it down as simple as I can. Now, what I'm asking is, have you been saved? Have you come to a place in your life where you recognize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior? Have you turned from your sin and turned to Jesus as your Lord and Master and Savior and friend? In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, John the Baptist said this. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So as we wrap up this journey, I need to ask you, if you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Master and Savior and friend, will you join us on mission by repenting of your sin and turning to Jesus, believing the gospel this morning? Will you do that this morning? Now, for those of us who have trusted Jesus as Lord and Master 
and Savior. For those of us who already have experienced new life in Him, then the question for you is, are you bringing new life to your neighbors and the nations? Through your salvation, you've already been enlisted in this kingdom army. There's no Hollywood snipers and Hollywood fighter pilots in this army. You've already been enlisted into this kingdom army. You need to ask yourself, and I'm asking you, are you accomplishing your mission? Well, maybe you need to rededicate this morning. Maybe you need to rededicate yourself to this continuing kingdom mission that we're part of. Wherever you are in your walk with Christ this morning, you need to understand this. No matter what your age, no matter what your schedule, no matter what your status is, no matter what your station in life is, your kingdom mission is not accomplished yet. As we continue to breathe the breath that God's given us, we continue to have a part in His mission. We're not finished. We're still on mission. The only question for all of us, Will you fulfill the mission that we've been given? Let's pray. Father, I am just overwhelmed by the preciousness of Your Word. Father, as we set out to do this study, there were so many parts that... I would sit and and look at and think, how in the world is this going to be relevant to your people 2,000 years after it was written? How are the events of places so far away and so long ago, how are those going to impact us and change our lives in Bluefield in 20? 17, 2018, 2019. But God, you have shown yourself faithful. You have proven over and over and over again what your scripture says about itself. That every word of scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable, is good for us. It builds us up. It reproves us, it chastises us, it changes us. Father, I thank You for that change and that growth that we've seen. Lord, I thank You for the hearts that You've changed this morning. Father, I know that when Your Word is proclaimed that Your Spirit is actively at work in the hearts of those who are listening. So, Father, if there's one here this morning who needs to be saved, Lord, would today be the day of their salvation? Even as Your Spirit draws and woos and convicts, Father, would they bow their heart to You? They turn from their sins and turn to Jesus in faith, believing that He is who He said He is and that He did what He said He did. Father, for those of us who have trusted Jesus as Lord and Master and Savior, but we've somehow settled into a place where we think it's somebody else's job to accomplish the mission or we're just we're just tired. Oh Father, would you revive us again? Fill each heart with your love. May each soul be rekindled with fire from above.
Father, would you do that in our hearts this morning? In Jesus' precious name, amen.